Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. Good morning, church. Man, so excited to be with all of you uh, today. As, as Pastor Rigo said, my name is Frank Trotta, and I'm a pastor and a missionary with Love Life, as many of you know. Um, and it's a delight to be with all of you this morning. It, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. What, what a moment and, and what a family to be talking about fasting and to be engaging in, in the spiritual disciplines in that way. So just excited to be a part of this family today. And I thank you, Pastor Rigo and the team, for uh, just allowing me to open and share the Bible with all of you uh, this morning. Uh, let me begin by saying this, that this is no small task. As your pastor knows and as others know, that what we do here today together is significant this time of study together. So uh, whether you're here in person or online, we thank you for, for being online with us today and using the tools that are available. But know this, church, that there is no substitute for the gathering together, the assembling together of the people of God. There is no exchange. There is no substitute for, for this mutual encouragement that we get to do in person, laughing with one another, crying with one another, ministering to one another, encouraging one another. There's no substitute for this. This has always been the assembling of the people of God from Acts chapter 2 all the way to today. So um, join us, come back and join the church in ministering to one another and mutually encouraging, as the book of Hebrews tells us, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because here we get to worship together with one voice. Here we get to lock arms in the ministry of carrying that out to love one another and to do life together. So join us if you can come back, man. This is a significant time together and God is looking to confront us and to comfort us. To do that by his word and through his spirit. So today as we gather together, let's just take this next moment and let's ask the Lord to help us in that endeavor as we, uh, as we look into his word together. So let's just take a moment and ask him for help. Father, we are grateful. Lord, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for this time together that, that, that we get to, to open your word and to be challenged by it and to be changed by it. And Lord, I pray that this morning that all those watching and all those here with us, Lord, you would unveil their eyes and unstop their ears, that they would hear and they would see you and be changed by that truth that we learned today. Father, we ask you to do this simply because we know that you can, and we ask you to do it because we know that you love us, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. While I was in college, I worked at a fish market. That, that, was, that was my job in college. Look, I know it was a smelly job. It was a dirty job. Um, it was a low-paying job, but I was a student, and I needed money, and that was what I did in college. And I worked for this Sicilian family. I mean, they're a great family. They were hardworking. They were diligent workers. These were old-school fishermen. I learned a lot about life. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the, the, the family business, if you will, uh, the legit kind, right? This was the fish business that we were in. And uh, they had this small boat that they would take us out fishing in. And they would go and catch dolphin and tuna and snapper and trout. Any fishermen here? Any, okay, so some of you know. Some of you know we would go out miles and miles. And uh, there was times they would take me with them to fish. And quickly found out that I knew nothing about fishing. 
Like, I couldn't fish to save my own life. So then they would bring me out on the boat to clean their catch. And I would end up cleaning all the fish that they caught. And they started doing this. And they would go out and fish for dolphin and for tuna. They would go like 15, 18 miles out to sea. And for me, I mean, that was like the middle of the ocean. They would go all that way out there to catch dolphin and all of these kinds of fish. And man, when the water was flat, when the weather was, was pristine, it was amazing. I mean, it was beautiful, it was calm, everybody was relaxed, but the trouble would start when the wind would kick up. That's when the trouble would begin, and, and you see, the burning hot noonday sun, the, 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 even a light rain or a fog or, or no, no, uh, no uh, heavy rains that day, all of those things would have little effect on a fishing vessel. The trouble starts when, when all of a sudden um, the wind got louder and faster. And I spoke to a boat captain friend of mine, and he said that wind is constantly the, the most difficult thing that they have to deal with. That happens to be the very first thing that they check when they go out on boat trips, when they plan fishing trips. They check on the wind. Weather, weather centers track it. Boat captains are warned about this. There's reliable websites and places you can go to find out this information. But he said rain is not the problem. Even heavy rain is not terribly the problem because boats are designed to drain that water quickly. But the energy that's transferred from the wind to the water is immense. And wind can be destructive and deadly because it kicks up waves. And waves can kill because they dump thousands and thousands of gallons of water in a fishing vessel that will easily capsize it. And when we were out there in the middle of the ocean and the waves got high, all I could remember thinking was, man, there's, there's no other option here but in the water. Like, like there's, no, there's no other rescue. There's, there's no hope. I, I don't see any rescue in sight. And us, us five or six guys that were, that were in the boat would have no choice but to be tossed overboard into the sea. Like if it got that bad. And who knew when rescue was coming? Who knew how long that would take, how long we would be in the water? And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, Mark gives us this account of, of the disciples, of, of the apostles, and they're in this boat, and they're in the middle of the sea, and, and all of a sudden the waves are crashing, the wind is howling, they're taking on water, they're straining and rowing and going nowhere. And Mark gives us this, this harrowing account. What are they going to do? It's in these very moments that what we see is Jesus revealing something to them. And he's revealing something to you and to me. Jesus, through his revelation, he will be their rescue. We can even say this, that in Jesus' rescue, he reveals who he is. And that's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 6. And we talked together a lot about it. It was even mentioned earlier today that the, the pressure and, and the confusion and, and, and the sheer hypocrisy and stupidity of the world around us and how to deal with all of those pressures and all of those things. And there's a way to do that. 
And this morning, we're going to spend our time in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to that, if you would. Mark, chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 45 down to 52. If you're watching online today, grab your Bibles. We're spending the rest of our time there. And while you're finding Mark, chapter 6, let me just lay some context out. Let me just lay some foundation for the story so we know where, uh, why Mark is revealing exactly what he's saying. It's actually John Mark, by the way. Mark is, is not one of the original apostles, as in the original 12. He's actually the cousin of Barnabas. And, and Mark writes this gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit in accordance with his close relationship with the apostle Peter. So what we get here was, was Mark was not just Peter's sidekick. Mark was also an eyewitness to many things that happened in the life of Jesus, in the moments of the disciples as Jesus had ministry here on earth. He was part of that. But we get Peter's perspective and Peter's preaching through the pen of Mark. And if you've spent any time in the Gospel of Mark, you begin to see that there's an emphasis here. Mark places an emphasis on the things Jesus did rather than the things he said. So, you know, the, the four Gospels, the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, they all talk about Jesus' ministry, the things he did, the things he said. But in Mark's Gospel, there's a particular emphasis on the things Jesus did. It is, it is this action Gospel, if you will, packed with, with going from place to place and doing one thing after the other. And as I even read, the Gospel of Mark, I'm moved by the intense action of Jesus. Mostly radical, often explosive, and always a display of exactly who God is. This is what we find in Mark's Gospel, just kind of laying context for the story we're about to jump into. And, and again, if you've read through that and you've seen some of these things, Mark is just not here to give us Jesus' bio. He has a much more profound and practical intention with his gospel. He writes that people would come to faith in Jesus. He writes that men and women would even come to a crisis of faith in Christ. Mark writes so that our lives would be rescued at the revelation of the Messiah. He provides us now in chapter 6, we're jumping kind of in the middle of 6, with this second miracle in a row. It's a training episode, I like to call it, where Jesus is teaching and he's unveiling to his disciples who he is. It's in these moments of stress and strain and difficulty and confusion and fear that we see Jesus using those moments to unveil a bit about his nature, the character of God, who he is to his disciples and to us. So with that understanding, let's take this moment then to jump into our passage in Mark chapter 6. So let's do this. If you're able, I wanna, uh, what I, one of the things I love about this ministry is the reverence that your pastor and you have for the word of God. So let's continue with that. If we could, let us stand as we read God's word. I'm going to read those 10 or so verses, and you just track along with me as I do that. We're in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Yes, if you're online, you can stand also. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Amen. Please be seated. First notice, as we just read the passage, that this is not only the second of three miracles just in chapter 6, but this is the second of three crises. In chapter 6, that, that last miracle, just, just before this, Jesus demonstrated the peak of his power. He created food for something like 25,000 people, 5,000 men. Certainly there were a multitude of other adults, women and children there. Could be said that he created food for thousands of people. He's also at the peak of his popularity. I mean, like any good Baptist, you bring food, you make friends, right? So he was at the peak of his popularity there. And we see this in chapter 6. It's actually recorded in each of the Gospels. And now, once again, this story, the next miracle in chapter 6, begins to unfold on the Sea of Galilee. This was kind of a hub for a lot of activity that Jesus had during his earthly ministry. A lot of things happened in and around the Sea of Galilee. And this body of water, 700 feet below sea level is a significant place in this, in this region. And we're going to talk about the topography of it just for a moment so you understand why what's happening in chapter 6 is happening. This lake, technically classified as a lake, it's surrounded by mountain ranges. The topography is such that around this lake, there's even mountain ranges that go up to 2,000 feet high and some that are really low. And the drastic difference that surrounds them on each side sometimes leads to sudden and furious winds that drop down. Extremely violent storms that happen. I mean, essentially, they're windstorms. That's not the miracle. That was actually fairly common because of the topography of that area. So this is what's happening in Mark chapter 6. He gives us this chilling episode on the lake. And, and today we find ourselves probably in front of one of the most widely known Bible stories that there is. You've likely all heard this story. You've either heard it from cultural references. You've heard it from even science trying to disprove this Jesus walking on water, all of these kinds of things. You've probably even read it in children's books. But that's what makes this challenging. The, 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 the problem of familiarity we get so uh, wrapped up in the miracle of what happened that we missed the lesson as to why it happened. So as we look at this passage this morning, um, there's even people that teach about this in a way that, that, that they focus so much on the miracle of you having more faith that they lose sight of fact of, of what God is doing and why God is doing it. And there are some unbiblical teachers out there that will teach and tell you that, that you've even got to become this water walker. Like, I've heard that language from people. You just need to have a boatload of faith. Just have more faith. Muster up more faith so that you can get out of the boat and walk on water too. Is that what this story is about? I mean, is, is, is this, you can have more faith 
so you can survive a storm, so you can get out of the boat and walk like Jesus, right? No, no, that, that's ridiculous. That's, that's not what this story is about. You're blindly missing the point of the story. See, when you read the scriptures and you miss the scriptures, the point about who God is and what God does, then you've missed God. See, the Bible is theocentric. It is God-centered. The Bible reveals to us the triune God, what he has done for his glory and for his purposes and for our good. The Bible's not about what you can do. The Bible reveals to us what God has done and what God will do. And in that last miracle earlier in chapter 6, I mean, the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the thousands, Jesus is clearly saying something. Jesus in that passage is clearly saying, I can take care of you. I will take care of you. And in this second miracle in Mark chapter 6, Jesus says, I can rescue you. And I will rescue you. And as we get to our first verse, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. In that first episode earlier in the chapter, the people need provision, and Jesus provides a, a provision, reveals a bit of his nature. In this passage, these people need protection. They need rescue. And Jesus, again, reveals the character of God and what he's about to do. In this next part of the journey, possibly hours after that first miracle, Jesus instructs, he really commands his disciples to get into a boat and go to another town just on the other side of the lake. And Mark doesn't really tell us why Jesus acts with such urgency in this passage. But notice with me, he said, immediately. That's one of Mark's favorite words. You'll see that repeated throughout this gospel. Because again, this action gospel will have that kind of movement. Immediately, he disperses the disciples and then sends that huge crowd away that he just gave dinner to. He disperses them as well. In John's account, the gospel writer John he writes a parallel account. What you'll see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, a lot of times, is you'll see parallel accounts of stories from different perspectives. Each of them write, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they write with their own personality and from their own perspective. John gives us a clue as to why Jesus would act with such urgency here. John writes this in his gospel about this passage. Perceiving that when they were about to come and take him by force and make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this mob of people, this, this huge horde of people were so impacted and so struck by the miracle of Jesus' provision for them that they were going to drag Jesus off with them and make him king and overthrow the dirty Romans. And pastor and author John MacArthur kind of uh, opens this up for us and says they were ready to start a revolt, a rebellion, a revolution. They were ready to take on Rome itself with Jesus as their leader. But notice Jesus' response. You see, Jesus has no political aspirations like this. Jesus doesn't want to be part of any angry rebellion, any misaligned uprising. He wants nothing to do with that. He sends his disciples to the next town, gets them to do the next thing, and then disperses the crowd. The crowd wants Jesus' food. The crowd wants Jesus' popularity. The crowd wants Jesus' power. And Jesus sees them for what they really are and for what they really need. 
This morning, as we look into God's word, bold faith, know this, that Jesus looks at us today and sees exactly who we are and knows exactly what we need. Why are you here today? What need do you find yourself struggling with? What, what need do you have that he's ready to address? Because everyone has a need. I mean, part of love, the, the abortion centers, and we stand outside and we see moms and dads and grandparents come and drop off their kids or their girlfriends or their wives. We bring the message of Jesus, we bring the message of hope to address the deep need that they have. They're going there looking for a solution. They think the solution is to terminate and to kill their child. Jesus has hope and Jesus has help for them. That's meeting their need. The apostles in this passage, they don't realize that Jesus is addressing their need. He's revealing something to them, a life-changing truth himself. This is the life-changing. This is why we say confidently, biblically, that Jesus changes everything. How can we say that? Because Jesus, as man and as God, has the power to change all things. And, and this morning, with our needs and with our desires, let's not miss this greater truth. With our struggles and with our fears, don't miss what Jesus is uncovering, that ultimately, he's the one that provides. He's the one that protects. He's the one that rescues. It's in this way that Jesus can say, I can protect you because I'm God. Well, this incident in verse 45 leads him to pray in verse 46. Look with me. After that, he'd taken leave of them. He went up to the mountain to pray. Apparently, he was there for some time. Apparently, he was there for, for, for a lot of time, not just a 15-minute time or not just 25 minutes of prayer, but for possibly for hours, he was there praying. And the disciples are in the middle of the lake by now, right? The disciples are out in the middle of the lake. Jesus is still on the mountain. And verse 47 helps us picture this. Consider their location. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. It's dark. They're beginning to struggle. The wind is kicking up. The, the waves are hitting the boat. They're taking on water, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen. In verse 48, this is the main miracle of the passage. Look with me. These men, in verse 48... And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Let's, let's stop there. These men, the, 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 the future of the gospel, the first generation of faith, they're in a dire situation. They are struggling. They are in fear. They're in confusion. It's grim. Do not fall in the trap that some commentators fall into and say, well, man, maybe they weren't really in that much trouble. Man, I, I mean, as we look at what we believe or what we guess doesn't matter here, if you're in the boat, in the middle of the lake, and it's dark, and it's grim, and, 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 it, and the, the roar of the wind, the crashing of the waves, and you're struggling, this is a desperate scenario for those men. I mean, this is why the New Living Translation, if you have that translation, begins that verse this way. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. 
Now, uh, waves grow because of wind speed. We said that earlier. And up to a point, the longer the wind blows, the higher the waves become. Notice in verse 48. Seeing them. The New King James says, he saw them. Now, now Jesus is on the mountain. I mean, and it's dark. And, and his disciples are three or four miles out to the middle of the sea. How, how exactly does Jesus see them? He sees them as God sees them. He sees them with his omniscience. Jesus supernaturally sees their struggle. And listen, wherever your struggle is, whatever it is you're walking through, Jesus sees it. I mean, the apostles don't know it yet, but Jesus is not just watching. He's watching over them. And that's the significance that we begin to see. You think you're alone in your struggle. I mean, these women and these families and these men that go to the abortion center, they think oftentimes that they are alone. They've been rejected by family. They've been pressured by boyfriends. They've been kicked out by by moms and dads and husbands. They think they're alone. You think you're alone in your struggle oftentimes. The disciples here in this passage, they think they're alone. But if you stay with me, you will see that Jesus will show you, both them and us, that we are never alone if we are in Christ. And in the middle of that verse, 48, we see the fourth watch of the night. That would place this somewhere around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So clearly, the middle of the night, clearly pitch black out there. They've been fighting the wind. For a while, they've been struggling. The NASB, the New American Standard, notes straining at the oars. Earlier in Mark chapter 4, their lives were in jeopardy. If you remember that episode in Mark chapter 4, they were in another boat. And Jesus was in the boat with them in Mark chapter 4. This time, in Mark chapter 6, they're alone. So they thought. And all of a sudden, he came to them walking on the sea he came to them and just consider the magnitude of those words through the violent wind through the crashing waves through the darkness and their disparity through their cries for help through their confusion through their uh just recognition of we are in a dire situation jesus came to them he comes to you In your moments of stress, in your moments of confusion, in your moments of uh, there's no clarity, there's no way forward, there's pressure from the world, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Jesus comes to you in the moments of your fear and your dark nights. Jesus is there. He shows up. I mean, this is the promise of God's word. If we're going to celebrate anything today, we celebrate the fact that Jesus shows up, that he's here. This is God's promise. Jesus knew exactly where they were. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He was unmoved by the waves. He was unmoved by the turbulent scenario. He was not stressed or slipping at any point. He came right to them. Well, how did he do that? It's okay. You can say it. It's in the Bible. How, how did he do that? I mean, he walked. Well, and, and that means exactly that. There's no, there's no hidden meanings here. There's no hyperbole. Jesus did something that no mortal can do. He bent the laws of nature. There's no hidden meanings. Jesus' divinity, 
is draped all over this chapter. It's draped all over this book. I mean, he didn't take a Coast Guard cutter to get them. He walks on the water. Now, most of your translations at this point will say he meant to pass them by. This is important. Let's not leave this part out. It's easy to jump on the fact that Jesus walked on water and missed the rest. There's so much more. He meant to pass them by. The meaning here, that Jesus was intending for them to see him. He would pass them by so that they would, in fact, see that Jesus was coming to them in this way. See, God told Moses the very same thing. This isn't new. God told Moses the very same thing. In the book of Exodus, if you remember that event, Moses asked God, Moses and God had this special relationship. And Moses asked God, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God says to Moses, okay, but, but, but you can't really handle it. So this is what we're going to do. If you look with me, I'm, this is the only other place we're going to turn today. Exodus chapter 33. So if you've got your Bibles, you can track along with me. I'm going to start reading this encounter between Moses and God in the Old Testament. Starting in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by you. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Notice what God is doing in that passage. God was passing by Moses, revealing something of himself. Jesus is passing by the disciples, revealing something of himself here. Jesus clearly is making a claim to deity. I mean, so, so for all of that rhetoric and for all of those people that say, well, you know, Jesus never really said he was God. I mean, that is an ignorance of the scriptures. That is a cultural narrative that's, that's far from the Bible. Jesus not only makes claims to be God, not only says the things of God, but does the things that only God can do. Jesus says, I'm not just the one who can give you some food and fill your belly. I'm the one who can save your life, both physically and spiritually, because of who I am. Jesus is the revelation that rescues. And you see, they, they still don't know. And Jesus is aware. They, they still don't know who he really is. And that's in verse 52. And we're going to get there in a moment. But look with me at verse 49 and 50 as we're getting close to the end of our passage. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Now, the last time they were in a storm, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was, was with them, right? They, he was in the boat with them, and they still freaked out. You remember, Jesus was asleep on a cushion, and, and the disciples were like, Jesus, don't you care? We're all going to die. This time, the disciples see someone. They know they're alone in the boat. They see someone, and they're terrified. And they thought they saw someone, but, but they didn't recognize who it was. And Mark stresses here that all of them saw him 
and thought, ghost. Right? This is, this is actually literally the Greek noun phantasma. Ghost, spirit, phantom. That, so this is specifically what they were thinking. Jesus gives them, notice here, immediate assurance. How does he calm them? How does he give them immediate assurance? He identifies himself. He, he identifies who he is. And it is in this identification that carries the weight of the passage. This we cannot miss. Here, Jesus answers the question that the disciples asked in the last episode. Jesus answers the question that every one of us should ask. See, in Mark chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus flattened the water and sent the wind away with three simple words. Remember what they were? Peace, be still. That's, that's what he did in Mark chapter 4. The disciples were, were so stunned and so shocked and so flabbergasted by this that they asked this question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Man, what a great question. Now Jesus answers it for him. Now Jesus tells them. And he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now on the surface, you're thinking, it is I. Okay, Jesus, we know it's you. But, but, but what happens here is that this is an amazing statement for several reasons. Let me show it to you this way. Let us use Moses again to instruct us, to teach us. When Moses was in the middle of the desert, right? He was a fugitive from, from Pharaoh, from, from the Egyptians. He was in the middle of the desert, and he encounters the living God. Remember, he's standing at the bush that's being consumed by fire, but not burning. Remember, God tells him, take your sandals off your feet, for the ground you stand on is holy. The real estate wasn't holy. It was holy because God was there. Right, So Moses is with God in that event, and God speaks to him, and Moses, Moses says, well, you want me to go back to tell Pharaoh and to talk to the Israelites? Oh, who do I tell them sent me? Well, what do I call you? And God answers Moses. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. I am. That is God's personal name. That is the self-revelation of who God is. And what we don't immediately see in the New Testament in chapter 6 of Mark is that when Jesus tells the frightened disciples, it is I, he uses the same exact construction that God used when he told Moses, I am. It is called the ego ami. It is the self-revelation of God. It is the name of God. Jesus is saying here, don't be afraid because God is here. I mean, let that encourage you this morning. Whatever it is you have on your shoulders with you. I mean, don't be afraid, Jesus says, because God is here. The disciples don't have to fear. They don't have to be in worry. They don't have to fear for their lives because God is with them. God is here. In the middle of that fearful storm, in the middle of, 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 of losing control, of losing their sanity, of losing their peace, of losing their joy, of losing their lives, take heart. God is here. I want to remember this so that, so that when I'm in fear, 
when there's confusion in my life, when, when there's uncertainty on the next steps, when I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and I don't know what direction, and all of the, the stupidity and the foolishness and the hypocrisy of the world around me starts pressuring me in. I want to remember not to lose it because not only does Jesus see, but Jesus saves. Don't be afraid. God is here. Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Why can you believe this today? Because Jesus said he's here and God is here and he's God. Through his revelation, he rescues And in verses 50 and 51, they represent the stirring emotion and the comforting presence of Jesus. But now verse 51 is just as extraordinary as verse 50. Look with me. Verse 51. And the wind ceased. You see, Jesus just doesn't say amazing things. He does the things that he says. He acts upon them. Not only does does he speak the words of life, not only does he speak the words of God, but he authenticates that message by what he does. Jesus gets into the boat with them. I think that's amazing. Jesus steps into their situation. Jesus inserts himself into their circumstance. He will do the same for me, the same for you. He reveals and he rescues. And notice with me that as soon as Jesus does that, another miracle, the the wind stops, like, like it dissipates. He sends it away as soon as he steps in the boat. Don't just see the miracle, though. See the lesson. He's telling his disciples, no matter the circumstances, no matter the circumstance or situation you face, you need not fear if you belong to me. He rescues them and he reveals to them once more who he is. And in verse 52, they still didn't get the previous lesson. You see, throughout the gospel narrative, throughout the gospel record, Jesus is backing up what he taught them. Jesus is authenticating his message and showing them who God is, and they're still not getting it. Well, at this point, if you're thinking, and you're all sensible people, so I'm sure you're thinking through this, you've heard this part of the story too. At this point, in Matthew's gospel, another parallel account, Matthew inserts the account that Peter calls out to the Lord, right? And the Lord says, Peter, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and walks to Jesus amazingly. Now, Mark omits that detail here. And I only bring it up because I know that you're thinking about it. Mark omits that detail here. And some believe that he doesn't have that detail there because Mark wrote, again, from Peter's perspective. So Peter, perhaps not wanting to highlight himself, not wanting to call attention to himself, he leaves out that portion of the story. Warren Wiersbe, John MacArthur, others see that the same way. So you can deal with Peter's courage and that faith message. We can deal with that in the Gospel of Matthew. But here in Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus, how he cares for his people. If you walk away from this message today, if you walk out of this building, out of this gathering, this assembling of the people of God together, walk out with this, that Jesus cares for his people. He sees you, he sees your distress, and not only does he see it, he does something about it. He comes to his people. We're learning about God's very nature here. And maybe you feel like the disciples. 
Maybe some of you feel like a, that you're rowing furiously and getting nowhere. There's just darkness around you. There's, there's confusion. There's uncertainty all over, and you don't know what's coming next. And, and you're just dumbstruck by the foolishness of humanity around you. And maybe you're just weary of getting hit by wave after wave of sickness, of confusion, of pain. Maybe you've been blind to the God that says, I am. And maybe we've ignored the, the, the God who says, take heart. I'm with you. Oh, that you would see the scriptures today, my friends. Oh, that you would see God's word for you today, that no matter the darkness you face, no matter the confusion that gets presented around the person and the people of God, be alert. In discouragement, be watchful. God is at work. In times of confusion, be aware God has not left you. Jesus looks at you and says, take heart. God is here. Do not be afraid. In their darkest moments, in their most difficult moments, he saw them, he secured them, and he saved them. And Jesus is still doing that today, right here, right now. As we go to the abortion centers and as we continue to do that very work for the gospel, we take this message, the message of hope, the message of help, the message of the healer that people need to hear and people need to see and people need to know. Because Jesus is still at work doing that very thing today. So I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And perhaps this morning here, you need to be reminded of this fact. You need to be reminded of this eternal truth that God sees and God hears and God is at work. I mean, perhaps some of you this morning, you, you don't have this relationship with God and you, you need this. You want this peace. You want this joy. There's only one way to have it. It's a relationship with God that only comes through Jesus. You see, Spurgeon said, many people will live their life thinking, well, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I can live fine without Jesus. But you cannot die without him. This morning is your opportunity, church. This is between you and the Lord. I'm going to pray. We're going to close our time together. You do business with God. You call out to God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there are some this morning that I would lovingly simply tell you, you need a relationship with Jesus that you don't have. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for you today. Lord, we're grateful for, for this reminder of, of you even allow your own people whom you love to struggle and strive and find difficulty because in those moments you reveal who you are. Father, in my struggle, in our struggle as the body, as your people, Lord, help us see, open our eyes to see who you are and what you're doing in the midst of my confusion, in the midst of fear, Lord, help us. We thank you, Father. For those of us that know you, for those of us that have a relationship with you, Lord, light that flame afresh in our hearts to go to you in your word, to go to you in prayer, to go to you in fasting. 
Father, for those of us that, that here, maybe we came as a friend or we came with someone or, or we're watching today and we don't have that relationship with you, Father, may, we, may you help them respond. May you help them turn from their sin, turn from their rebellion, turn from their selfishness and self-centeredness and embrace you by faith. That they would see that the living God has sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to be raised in glory, opening the gates of heaven, paying the penalty of our sin, reestablishing our relationship with a holy God. Thank you, Father. I pray for those this morning, Lord, that, that their eyes and their hearts and their minds will be open to that truth. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you, Jesus, for your great sacrifice. It's in your name we pray.